0: Please turn with me to Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you. And you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. John chapter 5, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. From death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Romans chapter 8. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: This is a wonderful passage. All passages are wonderful, but there are some passages that are especially beautiful. Especially considering how they work between the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures. Ezekiel was a prophet to Israel, but as we are going to see, he is not prophesying to a different people than us, but to us. He is prophesying about us and to us, and his prophecy is given to teach you, to teach me, what we ought to be doing with God's word, that we ought to be availing ourselves. To God's Word. And by God's Word, I mean the gospel, but not just the gospel in the four gospels, in a sense. I mean God's Word in total. That is to say, that all of His Word is a unified whole. It all is profitable for training and righteousness, and instruction, and rebuke, and admonishment, and encouragement. All of the scriptures are to be used by you, and they are to be used to create life. But before you're able to use them in a godly way to make use of a Christian discipline called reading the word or reading your Bible, you must have new life bestowed upon you by Jesus Christ. And so if you are a believer and you think to yourself, well, I'm already out of the valley of dry bones, I want you to think again. If you are an unbeliever, or you do not really know whether you are a believer or not, or you have some questions as to what is this thing called Christianity? Who is Jesus Christ? What did he do? I want to challenge you to listen deeply. I want to be able to... At the end of this time that we have together in just these few short minutes, that you would be able to begin to see what it is that God is promising people in the gospel. And that by seeing that promise, you would begin to lay hold on it and to begin to trust God and allow His word to take its work in your life. So I want to talk very briefly about the context of who Isaiah, or excuse me, Ezekiel was. We'll get to Isaiah at some other date. Ezekiel was a prophet given by God to the people of Israel. We're going to look at his vision. Then we're going to look at the Son of God's authority and mission, that is, Jesus Christ in him, uh, in his telling forth of what he is to do, that he has a specific job. And that, that specific job is actually told to us by Ezekiel and then in John 5 in Jesus' own words. And then we're going to move from there to, okay, now that we believe we are uh, no longer in the valley but are now a part of this army, how do you know for sure that you are a part of this new army that God is bringing forth in the world? Now, just at the onset, this is not a literal army, Okay, This is prophetic language, and we're going to see that quite clearly. These are speaking about spiritual realities that also become, in a great crescendo, a very physical, real reality. And we're going to see that that is the Christian hope. It is not dying and going to heaven alone. It is dying, being with the Lord, and one day by the Spirit of God on that final day, being raised to new life to live forever and ever with Him in glory. So we're going to look at a test that Paul gives to the Roman Christians to examine whether we are carnal, that is fleshly, that is worldly, or whether we are spiritual. So we're going to begin with Ezekiel very briefly. Ezekiel was a prophet given by God to the people of Israel, not a separate people from us, but a continuation. Ezekiel comes at a time during extremely grave sin by the people of Israel. Ezekiel is taken at the beginning of his book on a tour through the temple. By the Spirit of God, Ezekiel is shown what is going on in the secret places. He says that the priests are in dark rooms looking at pictures of created beings, staring at images of created things and worshiping them as idols. In fact, Ezekiel, as he's moving through the temple, sees the priests in the outer court and they're worshiping the sun in the very center of God's temple. If you have any understanding at all, this is not only high-handed rebellion, this is asking for it. (laughs) This is not only spiritual confusion, this is protracted, continual rebellion. It is intentional and willful. It is defiant and obstinate. These are the sort of words that God uses, and he says, I loathe them. I hate them because they are hating him. And he is trying to lead them into goodness. Righteousness has bestowed every blessing possible on the nation and yet They are playing the harlot. They are living like whores. And those are the words of God himself. As shocking as that word is, it is the only accurate word in human experience. In fact, God uses that word to signify a greater reality than what a prostitute actually is. God is using a metaphor. He's saying it's like that, but it's way worse. They are committing sexual immorality in the temple. So, after beholding the glory of God, Ezekiel begins with a vision and he sees the God of glory in all of his terror and might, whirlwinds, angels, earthquakes, fire, it's intense. And after seeing this, after knowing who God is, he then begins to see over and over again the idolatries of the people. God tells Ezekiel that Jerusalem will be absolutely destroyed for her spiritual adultery. God is cleaning house and starting over again. He is going to wipe the slate clean, so to speak. After condemning the nations for the evil, that is, God has a controversy not just with Israel, but also all of the surrounding nations who encouraged her along in the worship of these evil gods, who are really demons and no gods at all, Ezekiel then hears that Jerusalem's destruction will take place, and there is nothing that can stop it. The people were given chance after chance, and in fact, the people were even given more prophets before Ezekiel. Ezekiel's not the first to come along and give warnings he 's actually somewhere in the middle of this encounter of the the exile, though judgment has come and indeed he sees it come to pass he uh, He is actually not there when it takes place. He hears that it comes to pass, and then Ezekiel is started uh, God starts to give him commands to bring promises to this wayward people. Think about this for a second God is has a controversy with his people he sends them into exile there's a judgment against the capital city horrific judgments are are rendered against it and then at that point he then begins to issue promises think about the nature and character of this god that we serve that after for a time disciplining his children so to speak he brings about a new life what did we see last week and the week before that in the exodus right the The idea that the people of God sinned in the wilderness, and yet after that generation, God laid hold of them again. And he started to work with them and train them and show them, apart from my transforming you in the inner core of your being, you will never obey my law. That's exactly what's going on here on a national level. God gives Ezekiel a promise, which if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably heard that God is going to give his people a new heart and a new spirit. Something to keep in mind is that promise wasn't given to an individual. That promise is given to Israel. He says, I'm going to put a new heart within you. I'm going to put my spirit within you. The idea is that God is forming a people through the words that we're about to hear. Ezekiel's vision, therefore, in this passage is not merely uh, real, that is physical. Ezekiel didn't see like a telescoped version of what outside the city of Jerusalem looked like. He also saw a spiritual vision. That is to say this, Jerusalem really was conquered. It was destroyed. It was flattened. There probably was a place around the city of Jerusalem that looked like this valley. But what God is doing is he's showing the inner spiritual state which has led to the physical state. That is to say the people went astray in their hearts and then they began to worship idols in the physical. They wandered from God's laws. They didn't keep them. They didn't love him. And that wandering of heart became manifest openly. This is the nature of all spiritual reality that what is inside will come out. What did Jesus say? That out of the mouth come the things that fill the heart. Whatever you do eventually will it, it'll work itself out. Your theology is constantly being worked out in your life, in your experience. They talk about people who are bitter, right? Whatever happens when your cup gets bumped, if it comes out and it's toxic, what does that mean? It means you're toxic. This is what God is telling Ezekiel in this vision. He's saying that not only have they been judged, not only have they been slain, they're all dead, and this is their spiritual state. We're going to see why it has to be a spiritual vision in just a second. Though we have a vision of the bones, it's the reality of the state of Israel. Why is this? Because if it was just a picture, think about it, like an MP4 or something that someone took on an iPhone camera, and it was just like a, a picture or a video of actual bones, how would God then go to, on to say to Ezekiel, this is all of Israel? Wouldn't it just be some people in Israel? Their spiritual adultery is manifest in social destruction, societal destruction, and Ezekiel therefore sees in this vision nothing less than a complete rendering or a presentation or a clear judgment of this is the natural state of men who are far from God. Earlier in Ezekiel, God gives promises. He says, if you would but turn from your sin, I would cause you to live and then he gives a warning. He says, All those who sin, the soul that sins, will die. The problem with that warning is that we are completely unable to do anything about it. That is what is called a sanction. Do you know what a sanction is? If you've, if you've ever seen a trial, at some point they get past the deliberation. The, the prosecuting attorney has spoken. The defense attorney has spoken. The witnesses have testified. Experts have probably been called in. Evidence has already been either admitted or withheld or, or dismissed. Objections raised, objections sustained or, or dismissed. And then at some point the jury begins to deliberate. And once the jury deliberates and comes to a conclusion, and if that verdict is guilty, there is really, in most cases, nothing you can do to overturn that verdict. Yes, there is a process of appeals in our court of law, but the God and judge of the earth judges perfectly. That's what we're about to see Jesus say in a few minutes. The problem is all of us are in the same condition. We have all heard the judgment. Radio waves. Hmm. All sin breeds death. It is not just high-handed rebellion that brings death. All sin has a way of taking over lives. It is unstoppable. It is a power within us. God warns Israel that those who do not turn away from the evil will be destroyed, and they go on and persist anyway. Those who put transgression far from their heart are those who have a new heart and a new spirit. It says in Ezekiel 18, at the very same time that it gives the sanction or warning that the soul who sins will die, it then goes on to say, those who put their sins or transgressions far from them are those who have a new heart keep that in mind when we get to Paul's letter just as the gener- generation who fell in the wilderness Israel does not heed God's warning and therefore God tells Ezekiel this m- meaning in the vision he says verse 11 then he said to me son of man these bones are the whole house of Israel see this is a spiritual vision it's a representation God himself tells Ezekiel this son of man prophet this this one who's called by God to see and to proclaim He tells them, these bones that you see in this vision are the whole house of Israel. They are representing Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. I have this uh, box in my freezer that is kind of interesting. It's actually meat from a long time ago. And I put it in my freezer with the good intention of, I'm going to eat this and I'm going to have it. And it's gonna be delicious and sweet and savory. It's gonna be tasty. It's actually ham. Um, It's lightly salted and honey cured. It was delicious the day before I put it in the freezer. And I put it in the freezer about 18 months ago. (laughs) And I went to go get it the other day and I noticed oh, the lid is off of the ham. Have you ever seen meat that's been in the freezer for 18 months? I I don't believe in props, but I do believe that this would be a good prop. It was completely dried out. Not only was it dried out, it was frostburnt. Not only was it frostburnt, it was in there. You had to chisel it out. It was completely worthless. Have you ever seen turkey after Thanksgiving, like four days later, if it's not properly stored? What happens to it? It shrivels. Have you ever tried to eat poultry skin? After it shriveled, it's impossible. It's completely worthless. It's, a, it, it's worth throwing away. That is what God is showing Ezekiel. He's saying that these people, these, the whole house of Israel that I called to be my own, they've all become dead bones. The, the sinews have gone away. The, the nerve endings and the fibrous tissues and the skin, it's all been torn away. It's all fallen away. It's all decayed and dead. These bones are a very great number, and they are very, very dry. You see, it's not enough that God shows Ezekiel a vision of bones. He says they are very dry. They are a great multitude. There are bones on bones. Everyone in Israel is like this. Ezekiel's speech, therefore, is a prophetic picture of the gospel being preached to men. It is not just a promise to Israel of a national restoration from the time of exodus or, or um, exile. It is not just a picture of what God is going to do, because as we're about to see, God gives two promises that, meet, that should tell us to look for something far greater than just a return out of Babylon. The valley of dry bones is not a picture of Israel alone, but of all the nations, indeed every man's Sin has completely triumphed over Adam's race. All in Adam have received this condemnation and death. Ezekiel's vision doesn't happen in his day. This is why we know it is speaking to something far greater, far more glorious than just a national return out of exile and into the land. We're about to see why. The exile continues long after Ezekiel is dead. Ezekiel dies not having seen the people return from Babylon. And he dies and is not able to see the fulfillment. The people do not enter the land. And the significance of this is it tells both Israel herself and us still today that we ought to be looking for someone far greater than who can just bring the people back into the land. We saw Ezra and Nehemiah and their workings to reestablish the temple and the walls of Jerusalem and to call the people to come. But it's important to know your history because although Ezra and Nehemiah did wonderful things in restoring the importance of the law, in reestablishing some of the walls of the city, that the temple which Ezekiel describes was never built. Herod's temple looks nothing like Ezekiel's temple Likewise, most of the people who were in exile in Babylon don't come back. Even though they did come back, a lot of them were dispersed and spread out throughout the entire Middle East region, what we, what we today would think of the Middle East. Most of the people do not return from the exile. So what is it speaking of when God promises the people, you will return to the land? What does this mean? it has to mean something far greater than only a small, tiny representative sample of the people coming back to Israel. He says in verse 12, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord your God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves. Do you notice what's going on in these verses? He says, I'm going to open your graves. He then says, I'm going to bring you into the land. And then once again, he says, I'm going to open your graves. This is a great term, a theological term called hamburger. Okay? That's the term I want to use. There's a bun, there's a meat, there's another bun. What does this mean? It means that whenever they come back into the land, it should be definitely fulfilled along with coming out of graves. The question is, after coming into the land, did the people come out of the graves? The answer is no. The answer is no. When Israel returned from the land, none of the historic books, none of the prophets say that God raised people from the dead. What does this mean? Is God lying to Ezekiel? Is God lying to us by preserving his word throughout the ages and having it come down in these wonderful Bibles that we have? No, it's speaking to something far greater, far greater indeed. He says, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. God is absolutely Clear. He wants to make sure he not only does he give them signs and indicators, he's speaking in poetic and prophetic language, and then he makes sure sealing it with this verse 14, I will put my spirit within you, you shall live, and I will bring you into your own land. I will do it. I have spoken, and I will do it. And indeed, that is exactly what God is wanting to communicate. The act of his speaking is the act of his doing. That is, the word of God performs a work in his hearers. If the Israelites trust Ezekiel's prophecy, which they did, some of them did, then they should expect some sort of resurrection at the same time of the entrance back into the land from the exile. However, in the history after the return from exile, no such thing took place. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son into the land to begin to speak to his people. The father sends the son, according to the son's testimony in this chapter, to act on his behalf in announcing the restoration and the offer of reconciliation to him. That he comes to this wayward, rebellious people, and then he begins to testify, I will speak and I will cause you to live. I will put my spirit in you and you will come into the land. The gospel promise, therefore, is the way of redemption and healing. The word of God is the only means, the only means for you to come to new life. You cannot earn favor with God. You cannot earn the right to become children of God. You must have his word declared to you, and that by the Holy Spirit's work, allowing the word to gain entrance into your hearts and minds that God would begin to do this new work. One of the things I love about this imagery is that the creator God, the one who formed and fashioned Adam from dust is the same God who says, now, instead of my hands forming Adam, I'm going to use my word to form my people. I'm going to take dead bones, these this spiritual indicator of wayward rebellious sinners, and I'm going to cause sinews and flesh and muscle and a heart And not only that, I'm going to put my spirit within them. I'm going to fill them just like I filled Adam. True, complete restoration is the promise of the gospel. That through the gospel, you can become a real human. I was speaking at the conference with this wonderful uh, lady that I've known for years. Her her name's Mary, and... um, I was speaking with her about the nature of real life and just this idea of our hopes for the future. And one of the things that she said to me that was so encouraging was just this notion, and perhaps you've heard it before, that, that really where we live now is not that real. That is, in the next age, in the union of heaven and earth in Jesus Christ, every promise that we hope for, every promise that we could want to do, that's when they'll be fulfilled. That is to say that, you know, we're having this wonderful time of fellowship today in the things of God on the Lord's Day, but when we get there, it will be the eternal Lord's Day. Now, that doesn't mean you'll be in church forever. (laughs) Hopefully, you won't be in this church forever. Um, We can't contain here what God is doing throughout the earth. The point is that this is the shadow reality. You've never tasted an apple. You've never tasted an apple the way that you were supposed to taste an apple. The reason why is because our first parents stole the apple. They were kicked out of the garden. We don't live in the garden. God's restoring the garden. God's renewing the garden. He's spreading the garden throughout the earth. It's becoming a manifest reality, but it is not fully present yet. That's important to keep in mind, especially because in this church, we so emphasize to a good degree the present reality of the kingdom of God. But we have to keep in mind there are far greater realities. We do not see Jesus face to face. One of the greatest promises that you should have in your heart day by day is, I'm going to see him. I'm going to know him. I'm going to see him. I'm going to behold the one who I have trusted I'm going to see him and I'm going to live with him forever. That is what he is promising here in these verses, that you will come into the land. I will put my spirit within you. I'll dwell with you. Therefore, when Jesus comes and he begins to share the gospel, begins to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, he shows up as the fulfillment. Jesus calls himself the son of man. And what Ezekiel was doing in a prophetic picture, Jesus is doing in reality. Jesus begins to walk around in this nation full of wicked sinners and people who are caught in horrendous sorts of illnesses and demonic oppression and confusion and legalism. He Walks among them, and he proclaims his word, and people begin to come to life. He says in verse 24, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, it is he who has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. Remember that courtroom that I was talking about? What is Jesus talking about? Come into judgment. The the picture is this: you weren't able to say anything in your defense. Why? Because courts don't allow liars to speak. You have nothing to say. You have the enemy accusing you. God himself already has seen everything, and you have nothing to say in your own defense. If you face the courtroom in that manner, woe are you. There will be no remedy at that moment. However, What Jesus says is that those who hear his word, when the word gains entry to a person, and that word then is treasured and believed on and taken hold of, that that person who hears his word actually puts his or her faith in it, her trust in it, begins to believe it, treasure it, cling to it in heart. It is he who has eternal life. The way that you know you have eternal life is treasuring the word, we're going to see in just a few minutes how that is proved. He does not come into judgment. This is looking forward. Is not saying he is not only just not in judgment now. He does not come into judgment, but has passed, past tense, already taken place, passed, de- passed from death into life if you are beginning to treasure and lay hold of and receive the words of Jesus Christ so that you recognize both his assessment of your condition, that you are completely unable to save yourself and a wretched sinner who has no hope in the world at all, if you believe his assessment and then you begin to be drawn by him, by the Father to the Son in order to come to the Father, placing your hope and trust in the word of Christ That is when you know you are beginning to have new life. Do you believe Jesus' words this way? Do you believe them in a way that is trusting? The problem with living in such a thoroughly Christian conversational age, not a Christianized age, but one where the gospel is so present and prevalent in some small degree is that we all know these words. If you are just an unbeliever in the culture, you know the word faith. You know the word Jesus Christ, but knowing the term is not a profitable profitable use of the reality which the term signifies. Knowing the word Jesus Christ does not mean you call upon his name in a saving way. Knowing the word faith does not mean you have faith. So what what we're immediately seeing is there has to be some pressing out. There has to be some sort of application of the word of God the words that Jesus speaks, they have to be trusted. What does that mean? It means I begin in my heart to begin to transfer what I'm clinging to, what I'm relying on from self, from others, to Jesus Christ's word alone. If you want to ever have an exercise in which you see the gods of this age, you should walk around the mall and you should walk around the grocery store. And what I would encourage you is in the grocery store to go, go to the food, although we've idolized food to a large degree. Go to the magazine section. And one of the things you'll see is that every possible aspect of life, every hobby that is somewhat popular, whether it be guarding, guns, cars, working out, what have you, they have their testimony right there. They have their way in which to live. If you've ever tried to diet, you've You've had to look through books and materials that are that are possibly good. They could be helpful and useful. But so often, man puts his trust in the thing that he tries to do. I'm going to lose weight, and then God will accept me. Or I'm going to do this thing, and then I'll be able to have friends and have a better life. Or I'm going to read this book, and then I'll be successful. I remember that uh, I I, would, I knew this one young man. I remember hearing this story about this young kid who basically his whole thing is he wanted to be really successful in life. And so he read at a very early age Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. Have you ever heard of that book? That was back in the 90s. That was like the thing. And so, you know, he read this book and it was like 12, you know. Um, It was like, you know, this idea that I'm going to read these books and then after you read that one, you'll read another one. And then once you read that book, then you'll really be able to make progress in your career or life or ministry or what have you. You see, you cannot perform the sort of work that this is talking about. You're, you're the dry bones. Mm-hmm. Dry bones don't do anything. I I love I saw this picture one time about like, it was basically the picture of a, a sinner. And, you know, it was, it was symbolized as a, as a dead person on the side of the road. And... Um, Somebody was just shouting at the sinner, you know, like, get up, there's the hospital, right? The idea is dead men don't do anything. They, They can't. They can't do anything at all. And so the idea that Ezekiel is presenting to us is there's nothing that these dead people can do to become undead. They're dead. They require words. So, do you believe Jesus' words in a saving way? Do you trust his words and his work? Or do you, in the heart of hearts, do you trust in your own ability to curry favor with God? This applies to unbeliever and believer alike. Believer, you do not earn favor with God by reading his word. You do not earn favor with God so as to be received by him by your prayer or your worship. Those things can be helpful tools, but if you are still wanting to receive favor with the Father, to be accepted, to be adopted, to be made new, if that is the reality, they are profiting you nothing, especially if done for the wrong motives. This is one of the greatest dangers in in many churches, is that not having truly been converted, someone begins to believe that they are converted, and they begin to try to grow. And yet they have not gone through the door. They've entered the sheepfold another way. Those who believe Jesus' words will also hear his warnings. Listen to this carefully. If you've ever been troubled by a word of God or a warning of God to the point where you hear that and say, Nope, that's not God. I want to turn away from that. I'm just going to go back to the better portions. Then I would say you have grave cause for concern. Those who trust Jesus' words in faith will also, because of the new work that he's done in them, they will also tolerate his warnings, because they know that his warnings are given for their benefit. As sure as they trust him for new life, they ought to rightly fear him because he told them, I will one day judge all. You can't hear the word of Jesus and say, yeah, I want new life, but not also hear the very next words of Jesus in which he says, and I'm going to judge all men by what they've done. This is also a great danger of modern Christian gospel presentations. We take a verse like this in verse 24, they have passed out of death and into life. And then we do this mental calculus It's gymnastics in in theology in which we get from, I'm not going to be judged to, well, God will accept me no matter what I do. Brothers and sisters, it is the opposite of that. I have passed out of death and into life. Therefore, God is beginning to make manifest his salvation here, now, through my actions, through my life. Not in order to curry favor, not in order to be received by him, but as the fruit of his work in me, as the fruit of his work in me. This is exactly what God is telling us through Paul's letter in just a second. He says, Do not marvel at this. He says, I'm going to speak, and new life is going to come to people who are dead. And he's, spirit, he's speaking about it spiritually. The reason why is because he then goes on to say, Do not marvel at this, what I just said, the idea that my words will cause, will cause new life to come to dead sinners, but rather, do not marvel because an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs. Notice that phrase. He didn't use that before. He said, all those who are dead will, will will hear. Some of those who are dead will hear and they will be raised to new life. And then he goes on to say, do not marvel at that idea that my words will cause new spiritual life because also one day, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Do you see how this works? Jesus promises to speak a word and some who he speaks to will hear his voice and they will be spiritually changed. They will raise from spiritual death to new life. He promises that in verse 24. He then goes on to say, don't marvel at that, Because even more so, there's going to be a day when I will shout at the second coming, at the final day, and all those who are in the tomb all around the world will come out, some to everlasting judgment, some to everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, there is no escaping. You have a choice to make. Everlasting life, everlasting judgment. The way to make that choice is not to do good works. Look closely. He says, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So is the answer that I need to do good things? The problem is, if you ever were given by the grace of God even a moment of honesty, of knowing the condition of your heart, is you are unable to do good. Because all of your motivations, all of your means of doing those good things have been totally, completely tainted by sin. And it is only after being remade completely new. Remember, you're the dry bones. You cannot ask the dry bones to do good works. Jesus will one day raise all men and they will be judged according to their deeds, whether they be deeds done in faith in and in trust in and by the grace of God, or whether they have been done to exalt self or to serve created things and not the creator. Do not go to that final day without knowing that you've been known by God. I I was listening to a sermon one time and this, this man talked about the nature of raising children and he had been praying for his children and he knew that he was going to die he he was a father of a few children and he was going to be persecuted for preaching the gospel this was a few hundred years ago in england and he told all of his children the night he's being arrested to be either i forget it was either burn at the stake or hanged or something it was something extremely evil and severe And he said to all of his children who he had been discipling and reading the Bible, do not one of you dare to meet me on the other side of eternity in the wrong way. He said to them, do not neglect the great promises and gifts that I've given to you by going through God's word over and over and over again. Do not neglect the word of God. Therefore, to ensure that God's people do not neglect this important and vital reality, Paul gives them a letter, he writes this letter to them, and he gives them a series of tests to know whether or not they are in the flesh or that they have been truly remade in new life. Think about it this way. You are a Christian, you believe you are a Christian, you attend a church, but inwardly you have very little going on. How would you know whether you are believers? How would you know whether God has done a new work in you or whether or not you are just merely going through the motions? The reason why Paul gives this letter to the church and not to the world is because some in the church walk according to the flesh. That is the reason he gave it to the Roman Christians. If you look at the beginning of the letter, it's addressed to the church, not to the city. This isn't given to Nero. This isn't given to the Roman prelate guard and all of the various, this isn't given to the people who are outside the church. This is given to the church. It's God's grace by Paul to the church. First, he describes the glory of what has happened to them. And this is how He begins to show them. He says, this is what has happened to those who have passed out of death and into life. First, there is now no condemnation. What does Jesus say? He says, those who believe my word, for them, they do not come into judgment. That's what Paul says in this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation, not for all people who are going to church, for all those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the spirit of life, that is the principle of the Holy Spirit's activity and action has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Remember when I said you're the dry bones? Ezekiel says you're dry bones. Jesus says those who do evil are going to be judged. Paul then says that those who do not walk according to the spirit are under the law of sin and death. It's a law that you cannot escape. Think about gravity trying to walk off a cliff. Gravity does not stop working because you want it to stop working. Gravity is over you. It is above you. You are trapped by it, at least on this earth. But even when you're in space, gravity is still working, even though you're not under the effect of a planet's pull, right? Gravity goes wherever you go. You take it with you. Verse three, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, not that it was ever intended to, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. How did God condemn sin in the flesh? Because it required the death of Jesus Christ to deal with sin. Over and over again in the New Testament, God through the apostles is telling the church if there was any other way, then Christ died without cause that God spilled the blood of his own son because of some secondary reason. No, he spilled it because it was necessary. Why did God send his son? In order to preach his word, to raise the spiritually dead to life, that those who hear him would truly live. Again, talking about this, there are either children of Adam who are still dead in their sins, dead in their spirit. They're, they're walking around this earth. They look like they're alive, but they are dead. They cannot overcome the law of sin and death versus those who, by God's grace, through the activity of his Holy Spirit, have come to new life and are truly human. This is what the gospel means. It means that something terribly horrible has gone wrong and all men are living below what they're supposed to be, what they were intended to be in the original goodness of creation. And God is pronouncing to them through the gospel to be made alive again. Verse four, why did God do all of this thing, all of these things? He did it for this reason, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The majority of gospel preaching that you will hear today in this culture is what we call against God's law. It is anti- nomian That's a big word. It just means against. Nomia is law. And it's not against man's law or against a particular civil code. It's not against the United States law. It is against God's law. What it means is the law is completely irrelevant to Christians. But that is completely against what the New Testament teaches. God sent his spirit, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You cannot complete the law, dead in your sins and trespasses. You are made alive in Christ again, and then you begin to complete the law. Not to earn your approval, but in order to manifest the work of the Spirit in your life. In us who walk not according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the on the things of the Spirit. These are what are called indicators. Okay? What he's doing here is he's saying, if you do this, then you are. But again, it's very important to understand, you do not do this in order to become. The gospel is a free offer of grace to trust in Christ, to hear his words, believe them, and then begin to live according to them by his grace, versus... I'm going to hear Paul's warnings saying those who live according to the spirit are spiritual. So I'm going to do spiritual things in order to become spiritual. No, it's cause and effect. The cause is that God has made you alive and the righteous works flow through that, flow from that. Versus I really want to approach God. God's drawing me. I have this terrible sense of sin. I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going to start reading my Bible. I'm going to start praying. And one day, if I do this enough, God will love me. Brothers and sisters, you cannot approach God that way. Because whoever comes to God must believe that he is. And he's a rewarder of those who seek him. But wait, I thought you just told me that I'm not supposed to pray and not supposed to read my Bible. No, in order to seek him in the way he wants to be sought. The people come to Jesus and they say, what are the works of God that we would be able to do what he wants? Jesus says, This is the work of God that you believe the one who he sent. That is what Jesus is saying. That is where all of the law fulfillment in verse 4 comes from. It comes from believing and being transformed by an operation of the Holy Spirit that you cannot accomplish. And in that believing, an avenue and covenant of grace and life are opened to you. Clearly, God saved us to empower us to do his will, that is to cease from sinning, having our lives consumed by the things of him. It is not enough to hear the message of the gospel, place your trust in it, and then go and continue to live as if you've never heard, as if the gospel doesn't change anything. Paul then moves from this to strong warnings. Why does he move to strong warnings? Because those who do not believe this are under a strong delusion of spirit. Verse six, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it it cannot. The mind which is on the things of man is unable to do God's will. Verse eight, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the question that I have to you is, do you set your things, your mind on the things of life? I want you to begin to examine your life over the next few days and weeks and months and and ask yourself truly in a moment of reflection, do I think mostly about earthly and carnal things? Do I have my entire life wrapped up in the trappings of job, movies, work, Facebook, eating, sexual appetite, getting more money, whatever it is. Or take it a little further. Am I going to read enough godly books this year to feel good about myself? Press it home. Press it home to your life. I'm reminded right now of the time when the disciples come to Jesus and he says to them, Lord, the demons, they're submitting to us in your name. Think about how great that is. They've been living in a spiritual desert for hundreds of years. No one's ever heard about this. The apostles are given power. They go into the cities and demons are flying out of the rooms. He said they come back in joy and they say, Lord, we're doing what you asked. Isn't it so funny? Because another time they say we couldn't do what you asked. Jesus then tells them in that moment after they're super excited about this, he says, do not rejoice That the demons submit, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Is that your precious treasure? Is that the single thing that captivates your heart? Brothers and sisters, I tell you that it has been a journey in my life. It has not been one day but it has been a progressive sanctification in which God is by his grace alone through no effort of mine. He is beginning to make that real. It's not real. Paul says, I do not claim to have laid hold of it, but I press on. I press on to lay hold of the purpose for which he laid hold of me. What did we sing this morning? We sang that Christ gave up his body for love, for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame. Do you ever consider others? Again, this is a test. Do not base your entire salvation on this, but use it to probe. Are you mostly thinking about yourself in life? Do you ever do something for someone else? Do you ever serve anyone who could never pay you back? Think about that. Do you ever serve anyone who can't return a favor? It's very easy, especially in a church, especially in a good, healthy church or a church that has a lot of zeal. It is very easy for you to do things in order to get the favor of a pastor or in order to get the favor of another mature brother or sister in the Lord. We should be good to the household of faith. Amen? We're told to do that. But also, Jesus says, when you throw a banquet, get the poor. Get the one who cannot... That's not a metaphor. <laughs> Do you seek to be peaceable and kind? Do you go into every situation in your life and have a controversy with someone? Do you ever meet someone who you just will accept on just a human level and, and not want to see them as your project to change or influence or affect? Or Are you quarrelsome with other people? If you're married, you know. <laughs> You know that you are quarrelsome. If you, it should be a mark of your life, if you are walking in truth and light, that you are constantly apologizing and repenting, at least daily. Maybe weekly, if you're a really good saint, but, but, but probably daily. In, in my marriage counseling uh, that, that we went through, my wife and I, we were told by um, the person who was counseling, he said, leave three things unsaid every day. And I got into it a little bit and I realized I'm not doing that. And then I started to try to do it. And I was like, wow, I'm, I'm filled with bitterness and, and evil. I, I, I go around driving and I think to myself, man, if that person was just driving the right way, all this would be great, (laughs) but, but they're the problem. They should just not be here. That's murder in a real way. It's not tolerating space for another human being. An image bearer of God is my problem. That's If they just weren't here, that would be better. That's murder. Do you know the subtle areas where pride creeps into your life? This is extremely important in a church of this style, of this uh, character and nature where we try to focus on discipleship. The first and number one stumbling block that Satan wants to put in a believer's life who's begun to get a little bit of growth and a little bit of repentance and see a little bit of fruit is, man, I'm going to make it. Think about that. Have you ever felt that in your Christian walk? If you have, then the Spirit of God is operating within you to say, hey, there are warnings here. There are dangers. You are beginning to trust in self. You're beginning to trust in life, especially when people begin to give you compliments. You can feed on those in secret, right? Proverbs tells us, it's speaking of adultery, but it applies. It says, bread eaten in secret is good bread. Do you feed on the praise of men? Jesus says to the Pharisees, you cannot receive honor from the Father because you honor one another. Mm -hmm. And yet we're told to honor those who lead and honor those who serve well. So what is it? Well, you can give honor, you can say thank you, but at the same time, if you receive thank yous, if you feed on those, you are eating death. That is that is terrible. It will leave you horrifically. So here's a good one to press at home. Do you look down on Christians who have weaker theology? And I thought about putting quotes around the word weaker because most of the time when we assess other people, it it actually is not necessarily the case that they have a weaker theology. And what do I mean by weaker? I mean in accordance with the Bible. The problem is, We're not judged by what we think. We're judged by the level of love in our heart for other people. We have to become mature in knowledge because knowledge and heart are connected. But if you gain knowledge, you're puffed up and it profits you nothing without love. I was listening to a a warning last night on a sermon. It was a two or three minute sermon. And this person was saying that PhDs in theology... PhDs in theology have the same exact rate per capita as every other industry, academic endeavor, or 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 career of adultery as the rest of the world. Think about that for a second. Now, am I saying don't learn theology? No, I'm not saying that. But if you learn theology alone and have no reality with God, no wonder the deeds of the flesh will become manifest because it is only those who have been made new in Christ. Do you deny sinful appetites or do you constantly give in to temptation? I mean, constantly. I'm not saying that you are warring against a sin. You're confessing with a brother or a sister. Hey, I've got this problem in my life. I'm working on it. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to repent for it. I'm getting help. I'm getting input and I'm getting a little bit of victory. I mean, Do you have a complete inability to deny your appetites? That is to say that whenever James says the reason we sin is because we have some desire, some illicit desire, it takes hold of our heart and we give in to that desire. Do you have control, self-control, authority over your heart to sometimes by the grace of God laying a hold of his way of escape, can you overcome temptation or can you not Paul gives us a test in this verse, and I tried to give a few applications. They might have been good. They might have been bad. But he gives us a test by which we are to measure the fruit of the Spirit. It is the fruit of the Spirit. It is not the fruit of John. It is the fruit of the Spirit because the glory is given to the Spirit, because he's worthy of praise for any maturity in you or in me. And he does this in order... That we are not easily deceived. He says in verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. I used to read this verse and I would think, Well, I think the spirit dwells in me. I sense God's presence. I have some understanding of the Bible. But as you begin to walk in life, you have to do these things that we just did. Are the fruits of my life beginning to look like the fruits of the Spirit? If you want to look at that list, Galatians 5 tells you what the fruits of the Spirit. It's not whether I think the Spirit is in me. It's whether or not the Spirit is being manifested by my life. He says this, he gives them a test in order that they would be able to say yes or no. Not I think so, maybe. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The spirit will not dwell in you and not produce a change in you. Look at this. He says, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, not, I get good feelings during worship services, right? If the spirit of God dwells in you, one of the great tests to see if you have the beginnings of new life coming into your life is, do you even want the spirit of God to dwell with you? Many of us, when we begin to search out Christianity, we hear about this thing and it sounds really exciting, but move past that. The Spirit of God is supposed to dwell with you. What was, what was going on in Adam and Eve in the garden? They would walk in the cool of the day. The Lord would come and he would walk in the garden with them. He would dwell with them. He would visit with them. That is what the promise of the gospel is, that if you do these things, Paul says, if you, if you imitate your leaders, good leaders, and they, you consider their way of life, the God of peace will dwell with you. Can you say that? I know that God dwells with me. There is some sort of spiritual conversation and habitation in this passage. The Spirit will not dwell with you and not produce a change in you. If you fail the test concerning the Spirit's fruit, do not put confidence in the experience of your feelings. I'm not saying that experience is irrelevant. believe me, if you knew my what goes on behind my face in my mind, I love the experience of God's presence. It is the greatest thing I have, greater than my wife, greater than my children, daughter, um, one day, hopefully children. it is It is greater than anything. Now, I'm still easily distracted from that. The point is, if you think. You have this experience with God going on, and yet the rest of your life looks completely as if you've never met God, as if, as if you're just unable to resist every urge to sin. Do not trust in your feelings, right? This is not Star Wars. God will not excuse a sinner because they have nice feelings without truth, right? Remember a few weeks ago, God desires truth in the inward parts. That is the hardest place to fake it. The easiest place to fake it is external, in a church, in a job, with your spouse. It's easy to put on a veil and a mask. It is is completely impossible to say, yes, my heart of hearts, I truly do treasure Christ. Because he's laid hold of me. He's redeemed me. I was worth nothing. I was headed for an evil and horrible destiny. And he took me anyways, putting no confidence in the flesh. The fruit is necessary because Jesus says, every branch in him that does not bear fruit, the father will take away. These words are terrifying to those who resist his will and at the same time are wonderful and sweet promises. The spirit will dwell with me and he will produce the fruit. They are sweetly comforting to those who are truly his children. This is why the word of God is called a sword. We have this phrase in cultural parlance today, on the wrong side of history, right? Have you heard that? It's a great phrase because it shows their, their theory that over history, over time, things are going to become increasingly liberalized. Here's the problem. The question is not whether you're on the right or wrong side of the history is, are you on the right or the wrong side of the sword, which is the word of God? It cuts. It makes a division and you are found wanting or you are approved by God's grace. Here we see Ezekiel's vision expand to epic proportions. This is what I'm saying. You're feeding on the promises. You hear, take note of, and love and cling to the warnings. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And at the same time, you then cherish the promises. Look at this. We're going to end here. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, there's still going to be a death. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, again, here's these words, dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Think about that the next time you're worried about dying. We have a young population in this church, and that is somewhat of a hindrance actually to us in this regard. Many of you think you will not die. Many of you are completely unaware that one day you you live as if you will just kind of go on forever. That's an attribute of youth. But I want you to think about it. Consider the end of your life and consider how precious and sweet it will be for you in those moments when you take hold of a promise like this in your early or even later age, years, and live with the knowledge the Spirit dwells with me. I will not come into condemnation I will come into everlasting life. I will get to know the one who made me and remade me in his son. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would give to us the great gift. Father, I I pray that you would come and send your spirit and that your spirit would do what human words cannot, that you would open up ears and Lord, for the, the hearts and minds who already have open ears, that you would well up within them, that you would become precious and sweet that like you said to your disciples that we wouldn't rejoice in earthly success, but that we would rejoice that we are known by you. God, I pray that that would become the deep source and center and root really of everything that we do for you. If we be uh, in life and, and if we are new in you, that we would persist in that newness, that we would never forget what you've done in laying hold of us but that we would, by your grace, make a godly improvement on it, that we would feed and treasure the knowledge that you know us. God, we, we ask you to perform this wonderful act of, and miracle that you would cause dead and dry bones to come to life. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.